Before we read the word of the Lord, let us turn to the Lord in prayer, asking that the Holy Spirit who breathed out this God's word would fall on us and help us to hear it and understand it and obey it. Let us pray together. Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Let your written word, which was breathed out by your Spirit, now be spoken and heard by each of us. By the power of your Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Quicken our spirits to obey. May we not refuse your calling or ignore your voice to us this day. May we all be taught by you through your powerful word. Bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ. To the glory of your holy name. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from... Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Before we move into the particulars of this passage, I want us to briefly review the big picture of what's happening here in chapter 5 in order that we don't miss the context. Uh, Paul has spent the first four chapters of Romans laying out how the power of the gospel is to put people, Jew and Gentile alike, who are all under sin and under the wrath of God into a new and right relationship with God. Paul has laid out that those of us who were dead in our sins have been, by the grace of God, justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And in the sufficiency of his work on the cross, 
to be an atoning, substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And Paul has shown by way of Abraham how it has always been by faith that God's people have been justified before him. And now, as Pastor John mentioned last week, Paul turns his attention to chapter 5 to a new subject. The result of this justification by faith that Paul has been talking about in the first four chapters. Paul wants us to understand what comes to one who is justified by faith, and he's going to focus on two matters in particular through the course of chapters 5 through 8, which represent a section of Romans. So first, he's going to lift up the certainty we have, that we can have, that our justification will lead to final salvation. The certainty we can have that our justification will lead to final salvation. And then second, he's going to discuss the new power God gives us in our continuing struggle against sin in the law, which are the two continuing threats to our assurance. So under this theme of the certainty we can have that our justification will lead to final salvation. Last week, Pastor John began to discuss the blessings that we receive as a result of our justification, our being set right in relationship with God. And we saw through these first two two verses of chapter 5 that there are past, present, and future implications for our justification. We have been given peace with God based on the forgiveness secured for us and the wrath-appeasing sacrifice of Christ. So the hostility that existed between us and God has been done away with. This is the past blessing of our justified status before God. Now in the present, we stand in the grace of God. This is our present privileged state in which we live. Not only having access to God, but enjoying a position of acceptance before him. Totally reconciled to him, which includes his undeserved, unsolicited, and unconditional love for us. So not only has our status changed legally, we were justified, but our status has also changed relationally. We have been reconciled. And then finally, we rejoice in the hope of glory, which is that the glory of God will be, in the end, fully displayed, that the world will be liberated from its bondage to decay and will be renewed, filled with the Creator's glory, and that we, who once fell short of God's glory, will share in His glory. This is our future inheritance. Pastor John spoke to these blessings last week. So now, Paul here takes a rather unexpected term. So look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice or we boast in what? In our sufferings. Paul moves from rejoicing or boasting in having peace with God, standing in the grace of God, and having the hope of the glory of God to rejoicing or boasting in suffering. You should be shocked here. This should be shocking to us. Who in the right mind rejoices in suffering? Who boasts about suffering? Does Paul have some sort of strange attraction to pain? Is he some sort of masochist? 
obviously, I don't think that this is a case at all. I think it, what is at issue here is that Paul is listing these blessings that we are given upon receiving a justified verdict before God. And the problem is, is that life lived in our new status is not some sort of bed of roses, as some might infer from what Paul has been saying. I was reading an article recently written by a Christian who was encouraging other Christians to quit saying how blessed we are. He wasn't dismissing the fact that God has blessed him, nor was he arguing that we shouldn't have a grateful spirit. Rather, he was criticizing that he himself typically only said that he was blessed when he was prosperous, particularly in the material sense, when things were going his way. So he states in the article that we need to be careful not to reduce God to some sort of sky-bound, wish-granting fairy who spends his days randomly bestowing cars and cash upon his followers. He goes on to say this, Nowhere in Scripture are we promised worldly ease in return for our pledge of faith. In fact, the most devout saints from the Bible usually died penniless, receiving a one-way ticket to prison or death by torture. The author then recites the Beatitudes. Here are those whom Jesus says are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So on and so forth. So before folks start with their hashtag blessed lives, thinking that the peace they have received from God means no more worries and no more problems, Paul wants to acknowledge here that life lived in Christ is not going to exclude the believer from pain and suffering. Paul isn't delusional about the fact that we will face trials and tribulations. In fact, life lived in the path of obedience according to Christ, will include suffering. We can expect to suffer living in obedience to Christ in a world that is still hostile to God. Christ suffered and so shall we. What has Paul been telling those who come to faith as he travels around? If you look at Acts chapter 14, verse 22, he's been saying that through many tribulations we must Enter the kingdom of God. And he should know. He had just been stoned for preaching the gospel there in Acts. So we should be confident here that when Paul says that we should rejoice in suffering, he isn't speaking as a spectator, but as a fellow sufferer. Paul wants us to understand that suffering is a normal part of a consistent Christian life. Everywhere the New Testament assumes the believer will suffer. However, however, everything has changed for those who have been justified by faith. How we look at these trials is no longer the same because we now face them knowing that God is using all things to the good of those who love him. And let me say that another way. God uses suffering to accomplish his purposes. This means that while suffering 
might be seen as a challenge to our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, Paul's going to argue here that suffering can actually lead to hope. It is used by God to lead us to hope. It can provide us with confidence that our faith is true and that our hope is secure. Look at what Paul says here. Why does he rejoice in suffering? Because suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. I want us to spend some time this morning unpacking this list that moves us from suffering to hope that Paul gives us here because I think we can both be challenged by it and encouraged by it. But I don't want to stop there. I want us to push on through the end of verse 5 because I want us to see what else Paul has to say here about why we can be confident that we have a hope that does not put us to shame. But before we get to this list, I want us to be clear what we mean by suffering. Now, some commentators argue that the word used here for suffering in the Greek is a technical term. It's specific to tribulations which come as a result of following Christ. It is particular to the opposition and persecution of a hostile world. Certainly, this word is used in this way in the New Testament. For instance, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 24, 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This is particular suffering caused by persecution in the path of obedience to Christ. When Paul speaks of suffering, he occasionally speaks specifically of persecution, but he also speaks of it in a more general sense of any pain we endure as Christians, whether the cause be our fallen nature or by way of other fallen men. In other words, our suffering could come as a result of either sickness or slander. You can see Paul doing this very thing when he speaks of weaknesses in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But of more interest to us here is how Paul speaks of suffering in Romans 8, which is, as we will see, the parallel passage to this one. So what does he say in Romans 8? He speaks of suffering with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him, which seems to be specific to persecution. But then he goes on to speak of our sufferings in the present time, which is set in the context of the whole creation waiting to be set free from bondage to corruption, which is definitely referring to a more general sense of suffering. Not only this, Paul will go on to say this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Again, he's speaking specifically to suffering in the sense of persecution. He's also at the same time pointing to a more general sense of suffering as troubles one may face in this fallen world. Therefore, it's right to interpret the word for suffering here in chapter 5 in a more general sense. As Pastor John Piper states, they could be tribulations from loss of health or tribulations in broken or strained relationships or tribulations in vocational hardships and disappointments or tribulations in accidents or natural disasters or tribulations in verbal or physical assaults or simply everyday inconveniences. Anything that makes life harder and threatens your faith in the goodness and power and wisdom of God is tribulation. 
So, with that in mind, Paul says that suffering, tribulation, produces endurance or perseverance. What happens when hardship hits? When pain or frustration or disappointment comes crashing into your life? What happens when you hear the word cancer? Or you find out that you are the victim of your company's downsizing or things aren't going so well in your marriage or you find yourself in a prison in a foreign land where you have served as a missionary for 25 years. You shrivel up in resentment and bitterness and complaining. Certainly an option. Another option is to buck up and put on a happy face and try to push through it by your own strength. But perhaps by the grace of God, you are instead driven to Christ rather than away from him. You look to Christ and to his power and his sufficiency and his strength and his fellowship and his wisdom and his love. What effect does suffering have on one who has placed faith in Jesus Christ? Suffering by the grace of God serves to toughen up our faith. When times get tough, our faith gets tougher. Where once we might have believed that we could rely on ourselves to think that by our own strength we were providing for ourselves, suffering has a way of dispelling that illusion. We must look to Jesus and trust in him. We must depend upon his provision. We must rely upon his strength. We must put confidence in his promises. And when we do this, we are able by God's grace to patiently endure suffering with a faith that develops A steadfastness. As John Piper says, through suffering our faith becomes stronger. The way tempered steel is stronger. It takes more to break it. Tribulation is like the fire that tempers the steel of faith. So next, Paul says that endurance caused by suffering results in character. If steel... If that steel goes through the fire and comes out on the other side, then it has endured and it has been proven. So it is with the character of one who has been trial tested. It is authentic character because it is proven character. And this is important, right? Let me put it into practical terms. How would you like to drive across a bridge built with unproven steel. Any takers? How would you like to board a plane and hear the captain say this? Welcome aboard this Boeing 737 comprised completely of aluminum, steel, and titanium, which has never been tested to ensure that it can actually withstand flying at 30,000 feet. You want to get on that plane? How about your faith? If you're anything like me, then every day that goes by that you make it through the day with health for yourself and family, employment, a car and a house that is not in need of repair, without major frustration, feels like a blessed day. But a life full of blessed days leaves us with a faith that is unproven. Perhaps we should be weary 
of the authenticity of our faith if it has never been tried. I'm certainly not telling you to go looking for something bad to happen to you or that you should be excited about facing suffering, but trials have a unique way of forcing us to see our true condition and perhaps even the ways in which we were drifting away from the Lord. They show us what we really have when it comes to our faith, and they might be the only way that we can see what we really have. Sometimes they show us weak and shallow areas of our faith, which are then able to be strengthened and deepened by way of tribulation. They might show us, however, that we didn't have true faith at all. You know, it's easy to say and think that we have faith when everything's going well for us. It's easy to say and think that we have faith when all of our friends go to church. It's easy to say and think that we have faith when faith is nothing more than an intellectual assent to a doctrine. In other words, it's easy to say and think that we have faith when there's nothing really at stake. We don't actually have to trust in God. Pastor John said last week, it's one thing to believe that a parachute can serve to land someone safely on the ground. It's quite another thing to strap that parachute onto your back and jump out of an airplane. But someone who has jumped out of an airplane trusting in a parachute to return them safely to the dirt can authentically say that he or she trusts that a parachute works as it was designed to work. Their experience affirms their words. And this is what Paul wants us to see is a result of our suffering on our faith. Anyone who has been met with suffering, whether it was by way of a doctor delivering devastating news or a militant clad in black inflicting unrelenting torture and has responded, Christ is enough has passed the test giving proof of the genuineness of his or her faith. It's not a faith that quickly springs up with joy, but has no root and quickly falls away when faced with tribulation and persecution. And this is why suffering is cause for rejoicing. Because through suffering, we are made certain of our faith. We are made certain That we love God and we have rested in his love for us. We are made certain that we trust in his promises and that we understand his promises are greater than anything this life has to offer. We are made certain that we belong to God. And this in turn produces what? Hope. And this is how we get from suffering to hope. This thing that has threatened to undo our faith, this thing that has threatened to drive us away from God, this thing that has threatened to contradict our hope has in the end strengthened our faith, driven us back to God, affirmed our hope. The furnace of affliction makes us more certain than we ever were before. Now, I think it's important to note here, as Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, Christianity is not stoicism, which is mere resignation. Stoicism puts up with things, bears them, just manages not to give in with courage and a tremendous effort of the will. Stoicism goes on and just gets through. This isn't the Christian reaction. Paul says that we rejoice in suffering. 
And we see it again and again throughout the New Testament. You see it in Jesus telling his followers that when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, to what? Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. You see it in Acts when the apostles were arrested and beaten and threatened with death. And yet they still went about doing what? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You see it in James who tells believers to do what? Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The Christian's reaction is not merely to put up with the trial. It's not just to be happy in spite of it. It's not to be happy in the midst of it. It is to rejoice on account of it, because of it. Does this mean that we are glad when bad things happen to us? Of course not. Does it mean that we go looking for trouble? Of course not. We don't like suffering, and yet... We are able to glory in tribulations because our faith enables us to view them in such a way as to realize that far from working against our hope, they actually promote it and indeed further it. So even as troubles come and we are saddened by them at first, We are able to recognize that these trials, which are not only momentary and light compared to eternity and the glory there, but they are working for us. They are producing something in us. They are moment by moment loosening our ties to this world and binding us to Christ in his promises. This is what Paul wants us to see. This is what Paul wants us to understand. And I want to give you a word of encouragement this morning because not only does our suffering produce hope, but what Paul is saying here means that every moment of your suffering, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is completely meaningful. It is producing something, whether you are aware of it or not. I love what John Piper says in one of his sermons in 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, don't look at what is seen when your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you have cancer at 40. Don't say it is meaningless. It's not. It's working for you in eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore do not lose heart. But take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourselves every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for. Dearly beloved, rejoice in your suffering. And if this wasn't enough, Paul adds this phrase here at the end of verse 5 about God's love being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Paul's been laying out here and will lay out that there are historical, objective facts that we place our faith in. 
He has gone through God's faithfulness from Abraham to Jesus in the past two chapters. And Paul is really going to hammer home in the next few verses the historical magnitude of God sending his own son to die for us while we were enemies. The point of this is going to be to say that if God would do that for us, then isn't it reasonable to have hope that God will bring that work to completion in our salvation? If he did the hard thing of justifying us, of reconciling us back to himself while we were in active opposition to him by dying for us, don't you think that he will spare us from his wrath in the end? Again, Paul is stressing the reason for having confidence in this hope that we've been given. But what is this meaning of this comment about the Holy Spirit? Paul is saying that not only do we have this historical fact, this objective knowledge, but we also have experiential knowledge. We have this experience of the Holy Spirit who is filling us with the love of God. This is subjective, so it is not as quantifiable, but it is every bit as important and real. Paul's saying here, you want to know what else? You want to know why else you can be confident that you will not be put to shame, why you can be assured that you will be vindicated on the last day, why you can rest in the promise that you will be spared from God's wrath at the final judgment? Because you have experienced the love of God in your heart through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I love the word that Paul uses here for poured. It's describing a flood. But not only that, the verb is in the perfect tense, which means it is a permanent, ongoing flood. Paul is telling us that the Holy Spirit who is given to every believer is working to make us deeply and refreshingly aware that God loves us. And why is it important that Paul adds that word about the Holy Spirit here in verse 5? And here's the big picture for these three verses. Paul knows that there are enemies to our assurance. And he wants us to be assured that we who have been justified will receive the inheritance secured for us in Jesus Christ. He wants us to have confidence in this hope as children of God. And what are the two threats? One is that we don't really have true faith. That we have what the Puritans called or what the Puritans called false professors, that we come to church and are religious, but we are hypocrites. And so this thing that we hope for doesn't belong to us. But suffering reveals the genuineness of our faith and thus assures us of our hope. The second threat is that we stand firm through trials and tribulations and our faith is proven, yet the object of our faith is false. What if what we hope for is all wrong? What if God really doesn't love us? What if God doesn't even exist? To which Paul says... Not so. 
you have experienced the reality and the love of God through the power of the Holy Spirit who has been given to you and who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So dearly beloved, take heart. Take heart this morning through the assurance of hope. Have confidence that your faith, which is tried through many fiery trials, is true. Rest in the love of God poured out in your hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And know that the hope in Christ will not disappoint you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together.